Amen. Hey, we're starting in 1 John today. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bible in that direction. It'll take us, you know, roughly 18 months to finish. I'm just kidding. It'll take us about three. And God willing, we'll turn back to the Gospel of Mark after looking at 1 John. So, Lord, in Jesus' name, we trust you. We honor you. Lord, as we look at your word together, would you shape us, mold us? Come on, Lord, sift me. Would you deposit in us fresh revelation about your glory and your goodness? We want to be better disciples of Jesus. We want to reflect Jesus to our community. And we trust you. We love this word. We trust you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said amen. Amen. Well, the epistle of 1 John, um, it really wrestles with the question, what is Christian? What is a Christian? And that's the question that the apostle John is really working to establish as he writes to a church. Some believe that he's writing to house churches in Ephesus. Um, as he writes to a church that has um, been... Um, infiltrated with some false teachers who are trying to reestablish what the church is and should be, who the church should fellowship with and not fellowship with. Just quickly, First John chapter two verse twenty-six uh, says this: "It says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you." And so, just some context clues to show us that there's been an infiltration of leaders, people who are trying to assume leadership and reestablish vision and build fences around who can and can't participate. And the apostle John is writing and he's saying, um, we need to talk about what is Christian. We need to talk about who Christians are, what Christians do. And there's a crisis in this early church of a very base identity, a very core question of who are we? What are we doing? What are we trying to accomplish? And I think it's appropriate in our hour when there's definitely a spinning of what Christians should be and do in our culture. It's appropriate for us to just go back to the beginning. Like before we allow, you know, the latest news cycle to tell us what Christian, what is Christian, what's not Christian. I suggest we like allow the apostle John to tell us. I don't know. And um, Craig Keener, who is probably my favorite teacher today, he's a professor at Asbury Seminary. He, um, in kind of setting up the epistle of 1 John, he says that John is trying to teach us, and I think this is right as you read the epistle, he's trying to teach us that there are two things, two base characteristics that both most, must be grasped or clung to in order to become Christian or be Christian. Two base traits. The first trait is that Christians hold certain doctrinal truths. Christianity has a doctrine or an orthodoxy. And um, Keener calls this doctrinal fidelity, that there's a doctrinal fidelity. And second, the Christian holds out certain moral truths. There's, there's an ethic to be lived. Um, and he calls that moral fidelity. So doctrinal fidelity and moral fidelity. 
and Keener used this example that I think is really helpful. The turn of the 20th century, there was a great influx of theological liberalism, um, especially the 18th, 1800s into the 1900s throughout Germany, and it really spread. Every idea about historical Christianity was being questioned. In modernity and modernism, there was this, this great concept that we were now smarter than we had ever been, and we should kind of critique every little aspect about the faith. So the authority of Scripture, the um, every author of every book was questioned. And um, what theological liberalism did was it went to this place where doctrine really doesn't matter. What matters is that you love and care for the broken. And Christianity to the theological liberal was about the social serving of the poor and the broken and the doctrines um, of the past. We were now too smart to believe, so just throw that away. And in response to theological liberalism, that began to overtake all of the seminaries and all of the churches, and we still see it today, um, there arose a movement called fundamentalist, fundamentalism. And fundamentalism, in some ways, saved American Christianity. In some ways, saved American Christians from heresy. A lot of our, and, and a lot of fundamentalists kind of rose up through the Southern Baptist rank, and they, they really fought and argued for the seminaries and fundamentalists, uh, they kind of believed the fundamentals, the historic Christianity, and and they argued theologically, and they became um, a real savior for a moment of historical Christianity in the West. But where theological liberals, let me let me say it this way, there are two characters, characters somebody say that word for me because I can't say it. Yeah, whatever you said, that, that arose to the surface. Neither were fully true of anyone. Does this make sense? Like when you personify a position, there are two extremes that everyone kind of pointed at. No one really bought the full extremes, but they're helpful to think about. The extreme of theological liberalism and and modernity was we don't care about doctrine. We don't care about what, what the Bible says about who Jesus is. We just believe Jesus was a great moral philosopher. And it doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is how you live and, and empathy and compassion became the core of this movement. In other words, we don't believe the Bible. We just think Jesus was a good teacher. And if you have a lick of discernment, you still see this floating around. The other side, fundamentalists, and some of you guys were raised in fundamentalist churches, um, a fundamentalist said, all that matters is what you believe, not that you actually embrace and carry the ethos of Jesus in your soul. Okay, so in fundamentalism, there was this hypercritical, everyone's going to hell, everyone's wrong but us. Um, if you don't believe exactly the way we believe concerning the return of Jesus, the timing, here's our chart. You don't believe this, you're not a Christian and you're going to hell, and you better have your skirt touching your ankles and your hair done just right, or you're not a Christian. This, in fundamentalism, what developed was, we are the... The doctrinal watchdogs, we don't care about the poor. This is a caricature, but it's kind of fleshed out. We don't care about the poor. We don't care about the broken. Everyone else can go to hell. We are going to defend to the death these core sets of doctrines. Now, Keener shows, and I think this is what the Apostle John is going to show, neither of those caricatures are Christian. 
it actually is not Christian to say, I believe all the right doctrines, but I don't carry in my soul the, the ethos, the nature of the person of Jesus Christ. If you believe the right doctrines, but in your daily life, you are not growing to be more like Jesus. That, by God, is what discipleship is, right? Like every bread, I say all the time, bread said it this morning. Every year, every month, over month, I want to look a little bit more like Jesus. Less anxious, more selfless. Less self-serving, less concerned with my own wealth and well-being. More concerned with pouring myself out for the gospel and to serve people. The doctrines matter, but in the words of of the Apostle James, um, hearing without doing is empty. The, the doctrines matter, but also matters the heart. And you can have the right head about things and a wicked heart in your chest. And John says, not Christian at all. And so, do you guys follow what I'm saying? It's not Christian to say, we believe whatever we want to believe. We just serve the poor and we just do social reform. That's not Christian. If you don't, uh, in, in theological liberalism, they would say, like, it doesn't matter what you believe about the incarnation or the resurrection, bodily resurrection of Jesus. They denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus and still called themselves Christian. The Apostle John would say, if you deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus, you are not Christian. And you can embrace the moral teaching of Jesus and try to trap him up like that, and all that makes you is a moralist. And we actually believe that you can believe the morality of Jesus, that serving the poor matters, that caring for the sick matters, but you actually can't do those things without the power of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, causing you to be born again. So the doctrine of the resurrection matters for the expression of the morality concerning Christianity. You can't express Christianity without the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus. And and so the, the Apostle John is saying, what is Christian? Who is Christian? So he's going to start today, and it, and it actually is fascinating. I'm going to do my best to um, to shape and to show you how incredibly important this is. He starts with the incarnation or with Christology, um, meaning you, it's important to ask the question, who is Jesus? It's also important to ask the question, what is Jesus? Do you understand what I mean by the question, what? Um, fully God, fully man, the nature of Jesus And all of your life, all of your Christianity flows from the fountainhead of your doctrine concerning the incarnation, concerning Christology, who Jesus is. If you don't have right Christology, everything else that flows from will be wrong. Okay, that's not exciting necessarily. Like, I'm not going to be on Twitter or on Instagram with little clips with trendy statements and everyone's going to be saying ooh and ah. But this is Christian. You follow me? Might not be the entertainment, the itching of the ears that we want to hear in our culture, but this is Christian. Get your Christology right, and everything else will flow downstream. Okay. First John, we're just going to read today verses 1 through 4. And I understand that that's going to take a long time if we keep this rhythm, but you'll get over it. That which was from the beginning. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands 
concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Again, notice John writing to a church that's wrestling with the question, what is Christian? Where there are some false teachers coming in to try to reshape and redefine who they are and what they're called to. John first says, let's talk about Christology. Let's talk about the incarnation. That which was from the beginning. Fundamentally, the confession of Christianity from day one was that Jesus was in the beginning. He's echoing, John is obviously echoing Genesis chapter one. He's also reestablishing his own prologue from the gospel of John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John writing to churches now, probably house churches in Ephesus, is recircling back around and he's trying to establish for the church again. Let's go back to the prologue. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Here his words are in the beginning. This language is intended to redefine for the reopen up, redescribe for the church the, the, the fundamental Christian truth that Jesus has no beginning but was in the beginning. Okay, and and he's also trying to show us that this is not polytheism, right? We're not talking about multiple gods with one made the water and one made the sun. There's a God of the harvest. We're not talking about that because what we're talking about, Jesus, who was in the beginning, was the word, was with God. He was one with the Father. There is a union, a holy union between the Father and the Son that existed from eternity past. He had no beginning. He has no end. That joggles our brains because everything in creation has a start and finish. But it's actually based logic that if everything in creation has a start and finish, there had to be something eternal to start the start. That's just based logic. And so what we find in John's writing and in early Christianity is that before creation began, Jesus was with the Father. He calls him here the word of life, meaning that all life, eternal life, all real living, every expression and creation of God's goodness, all existence, all life flows from him, him his word. Colossians 1 says that, He was before all things. All things were made for him and in him. All things hold together. Jesus existed always and is the primary flow or the primary fountainhead by which all life flows from. He is not only uncreated, but he is one with the Father. And and this is what we would call the deity of Jesus, the divine nature of Jesus. And John starting his epistle by saying this, if you do not acknowledge the divine nature of Jesus, the eternality of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, you are not Christian. 
can't be Christian unless you confess that Jesus is fully God. But the heresy here that I think John is actually dealing with, and, and this is a theory, but most kind of wrestle with it, is he's actually probably wrestling with people who are not denying the deity of Jesus, but are denying the humanity of Jesus. Because if you think, um, if you think well, the last apostle alive was the apostle John. He lived later than everyone else. His writings were later than everyone else. And if you think, um, you know, if I were to write to the church, I don't know, in the seventies, like the doctrinal issues, the ideas, like the things that I would address would be totally different than if I were to write to the church today. And just that 40 or 50 year span, there's a great swing of doctrinal emphasis. There's a great swing in cultural movements that need to be addressed. And when John writes, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later, he is writing towards different issues that have now arisen within culture. And most believe he's writing against an early expression of Gnosticism, that these who are trying to deceive the church are teaching an early expression of Gnosticism. Gnostics believed that they had secret knowledge. You know this, we've talked about this a hundred times. But one of the teachings of Gnosticism, it was dualistic, meaning that everything that is spiritual is good and everything that is matter is evil. Now, as Christians, we would say everything that is spiritual is not good. Right? Like, take your witchcraft someone else. The spiritual, yes, but you can take that demonic junk down the, down, down the, down the street. Okay? Um, not everything that is spiritual is good. And not everything that is matter is evil. When God created, he said, it's good. And so, like, our enemy is not our flesh and bone. Um, our enemy is the broken state in our souls. Um, but what they taught was that everything that is matter is evil. Therefore, Jesus was not a man. He was a ghost or a spirit or a um, kind of floating thing that looked human but wasn't human. He wasn't matter. So John opens his epistle by saying, that which we have heard, that which we have touched, that which we have seen. And what he's saying is he's claiming eyewitness authority. Again, in a court of law, the person who has the most weight to their testimony is the person who was there. Okay, I always try to say that, like, if you try to, if I tried to go and say O.J. Simpson um, was guilty, no one cares what I think about O.J. Simpson. I wasn't even born yet. Okay, Um, that tells you something. John is saying, I was there. And we touched him. We heard him. We saw him. He was man. And now this doctrine of the humanity of Jesus is is plainly that Jesus assumed humanity. He didn't put off his deity or become less God. He received in himself humanity. Now, man, how much do we want to talk today? I don't know. I'm feeling a little bit chatty, so um, I drank a big thing of coffee already, so take that. Um. When you look at like Greek mythology, like these ideas that a God came down and had relation with a woman and produced a demigod. Um, shoot, we watched Aquaman this week. It's not quite the same thing because they're living in Atlantis and they're kind of these water people. 
but you get what I'm saying. Like in Greek mythology, um, when a god came down and had relation with a woman, they produced a half god, half man. John and all the apostles want you to know, living in a Greek world, right? Not what Jesus is. The idea of the, the Virgin Mary is that she carried a son while still being a virgin. Okay, so sometimes you'll find in liberalism or you'll find in this kind of heretical thing where people will say that Mary had relations with God. No, she didn't. She was a virgin with a baby in her womb. That was the miracle. Like, I don't know how dumb you could be. Like, the the miracle is that she's still a virgin with a baby. Okay, and so Jesus is not half God, half man. He is fully God and fully man. This is not Greek mythology. This is based Christian doctrine. So John says he was touchable, visible. Now, it is interesting, again, because every heretical movement, every single one, the doctrines that they will assault, firstly, will be the nature of Jesus. And so if you just work through them, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach basically Arianism. And in Arianism, Jesus is like, a, almost like an angel. He, Jesus was a created, he was the first creation or a created being that, that led. He's in, in, in Jehovah's Witness theology, he's the brother of Michael. Like Christianity says, no, Jesus is not the brother of Michael. He's the God of Michael. And he wasn't the first created being. He is the fountain by which all creation flows from. So the big doctrine that the Jehovah's Witness want to steer you towards is Arianism. And the Mormons, the big doctrine they want to steer you towards is that Jesus was a man who rose towards deity. And you too can rise towards deity. Oh God, you'd make an awful God. I know you enough. But not want to live in your universe. Jesus was not a man who rose towards deity. And you could work through, there's some Pentecostal doctrines, like obviously the Pentecostal oneness, that's a heretical doctrine, movement, Pentecostal oneness teach that Jesus was not a distinct person, but it's called modalism, that um, the Father became Jesus by putting on flesh, and then the Holy Spirit is just the Father now changing modes like a mask. And no, um, Trinitarian theology is what the church has always taught. Um, When the Father says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased, and the Spirit descends upon Jesus as he's being baptized. In this moment, we see all three persons of the Trinity acting out. They're not one, one person that changes modes. And probably the worst of charismatic Pentecostal Christology that is promoted is um, this idea that at Jesus' baptism, he became anointed with the Spirit and then somehow became God. Like, oh gosh, I saw something this morning of a very... A very famous uh, uh, female pastor's wife who said that that God chose Jesus to become God and at his baptism. Like, that is so, shoot, can I say crappy in church? Just crappy theology. Not Christian. He didn't become God at the baptism. Man, he always was God. And anyone who tries to shift the church away from fidelity concerning Christology, that he is eternally God backwards and forwards, and he took on, he assumed humanity to walk with us, to live in our broken filth, 
because of his own love for us. Anyone who denies that is a heretic and they are not Christian. Theological liberalism. And, and, and I don't, I'm sorry, gosh, I feel so rude because I am. Um, the fact that, that so-and-so says so-and-so church, the, the church at the end doesn't make it a church. Okay, if they do not confess freely, openly, and without hesitation, the deity and humanity of Jesus, they're not a church. They're a heretical movement. I don't care what their name is. I don't care what they market. Like you could, you could say Mormonism is just another expression of Christianity. No, it's not. And maybe the Mormons say so, but the Apostle John does, says they are not Christian. Not until they repent. So the Gnostics are teaching that Jesus is this kind of ghost man. And John rises and says, no, that which was from the beginning. And then John says, I touched him. I heard him talk. I saw him with my own eyes. And he is the word of life. Now, from there, I want to say this. I think there's actually a much more profound beauty to what John's doing than what we catch on the surface. He is saying throughout his epistle that you can't be a Christian unless you believe the right things about Jesus and unless you live a life of love submitted to the authority of Jesus, expressing his nature and character in the earth. You have to do both to be Christian. And I think the incarnation is the greatest expression of pure doctrine and pure love. So John's the one who says Jesus was full of grace and truth. And so in the incarnation, if you'll just read those words of John, that which was from the beginning, that which I touched, heard, saw, who was the word of life, who came to express grace to the earth. If you'll read that long enough, you'll find yourself meditating upon not just a doctrine, but a historical event, a moment in history. And the historical event that took place was Jesus, in the words of one Puritan, uncrowning himself to be born in a manger. The historical event, the moment in history is Jesus putting aside total glory and peace. He existed in a state of perfection. One, like, perfect intimacy celebrated by all angelic hosts, the Prince of Heaven, and he puts that aside to be born in the dirt and to be spit upon by absolute idiots. And the question arises, why? And the only answer that makes any sense is what we call like agape love, selfless love, a, a, a movement of the heart of God towards us in the incarnation that we couldn't even fathom. Justice would be for God to lean back and say, man, you guys made a, you made your bed lay in it. Be consumed with your own evil. And I'll just, I'll just, I'll just move out of the way. That would be justice. But crazy mercy and grace and love is leaving heaven to be born in the dirt so that you could spit on him and crucify him so that he could redeem you? That's a real lack of concern for your own well-being in order to pour out love on someone who hates you anyway 
And so the incarnation is not just a pure doctrine that must be believed, but it's actually the, one of the greatest expressions of selfless agape love to receive the full revelation of what the incarnation is. It's to believe that Jesus is man and God fully, but it's also to receive agape love that in my fallen, broken, gross sin, God came to me even though it greatly inconvenienced himself. To receive the full revelation is to receive the doctrine and the heart. And Christians live under the weight of both. The weight of this revelation must shape everything about you, everything about the way you live life. And John is saying the weightiness of this truth must be lived under in order for there to be anything called Christian. So in Keener's words, again, it's doctrinal fidelity. It is believing the right things about the Son of God, about the Trinity. It's doctrinal fidelity. But the doctrinal fidelity without the moral expression, without bearing under the weight of agape love and being so moved and broken by it that you begin to reflect it, Keener says that you actually haven't been broken by the gospel at all. You have to, you have to carry both. And so, so to kind of wrap this up in, in our day, I think we're seeing this in our political landscape. This idea that like, the only two options are to celebrate, um, open sexuality, to celebrate, um, young children transitioning their gender, mutilating. You, you either have to celebrate that or you can believe the Bible and be mean. And the Christian response is, okay, like, obviously, the idea that a child can change their gender is anti-biblical and biologically kind of ridiculous. Secondarily, obviously, according to the scriptures, that said child is confused, maybe maybe the family is deceived, and what they need is the gospel of Jesus in compassion and love as people surround them, gently challenge them, what they do not need is for you to point your fingers and say, you're going to hell. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a wrestling that has to take place. And, and it's a cop-out. It's an absolute cop-out to say, we are going to double down and just build a little fence around our property and say, you know, as for us, we're going to believe the right things but we're going to treat everyone else like they're total garbage in order to defend and protect us. It's a total cop-out. It's also a total cop-out to say, love is patting everyone on the back and letting them destroy themselves and saying, good job, baby. That's also a cop-out. That ain't love. A total cop-out. And and so you say, well, Caleb, what are we supposed to do? Wrestle. You're supposed to wrestle with it. And so Jeff got real excited. Okay. Okay. So, so let me say, when, and several of you have, we, I've been through this with several people in our congregation at this point, and we're just where we are culturally. When a family comes to me and says, we have an adult child who is a practicing homosexual, and they are getting ready to have a wedding, and they have invited us, and said couple in our church says, we don't really know what to do in this situation. 
that response, I don't know how to handle myself in a way that honors God, that that response is holy. The I think, this is just Caleb talking, I think the response that says, what you should do is just flip them off and move on. I don't think that's Christian. And the response that says, what we should do is just never talk to them about the fact that we think they're making a bad decision and living in sin, and we should just, you know, buy them a new house and cars and celebrate. I don't think that response is Christian. I think the middle response, the wrestling, and getting with Christian friends, and I try not to ever even have, really have a response other than to try to help discern, okay? If this child is making this decision that you obviously disagree with, do they know you disagree with it? Yes, they know we disagree with it. Okay, what would be damaging to your relationship in the future? Is there any way to posture yourself where you still have relationship in the days ahead while you hold your doctrinal? Like there's, there's a wrestling and a, okay, how do, we, how do we live out the two tensions of trying to honor people and show that people are valuable and not garbage while clinging to truth? And, and that's grace and truth. And, and that, that wrestling that happens, that discerning, that help me think this through, what's right, how do I handle myself, that is Christian. And that is holy. And that is the response of people who believe the doctrine and live the life. And so, um, you know, I've tried to say, I don't know, shoot, I don't know how long the current LGBTQ transgenderism movement, I don't know how long that movement's actually going to last because um, for like, like you can only be so illogical for so long. Like logic catches up with you sooner or later. It, do you, and I don't, I don't mean that mean at all, but like sometimes dumb thinking bites you in the butt. You got a teenager with a credit card and they think life's good. They're going to buy everything they want. Well, that's going to catch up with you sooner or later. Um, it's, it's so I don't, I don't know how long that movement's going to run. I think the logic will, will catch up sooner or later. But if it continues on in the direction things continue on, we are going to have to train our kids to cling fast to doctrinal purity, to acknowledge the illogic and the, the fact that that position is antichrist and is deception. Our kids are going to have to understand that. And our kids are also going to have to understand that those people are not their enemies, but their harvest. You follow what I'm saying? We don't want to train them to spit on those individuals who are bound in it. We want to train them to snatch them. Not to spit on them, but to fish good. Do you know what I'm saying? We, we want to train them to be strategic in the way that they speak, in the way that they interact. And um, that expression in the earth is, is Christian. Um, doctrinal fidelity and moral fidelity. It's not Christian to believe the right things and never give a dollar to the poor. That is unchristian. And the early church would be so befuzzled by the idea that Christians ever did that. Um, do you, you know they were like selling their land so that they could, the apostles could use the money and care for, care for people when they were sick or like that. That was so common sense to them. It is anti-Christian to say, I believe that Jesus left heaven to come to earth and put on flesh to serve me, but I refuse to serve anyone else. Not even, you have not been moved by the gospel story. At the same time, it's wildly anti-Christian. Just to, just to say, what Christianity is, is a social movement 
by which we try to uplift the, the, the oppressed or the downtrodden. It doesn't take long before you're just in Marxism, socialism. Um, and again, let, let, me, let me say this. Some of us in the room, and I, I'm, I'm landing now, so just, just pay attention to me. Um, Emma, if you want to come. I know half of you guys have been sleeping the whole time. Um, shame on you. Some of us in the room, we were raised in, in churches or in spiritual families and settings where everything was about believing the right thing, but going home and treating each other like trash. I've been around people who have the right doctrine, but they leave church and gossip about everybody. The right doctrine, but the doctrine has not actually penetrated their stony hearts. And so we call that like religious, like the spirit of religion that wants to convince you that if you just show up and act right in the church setting, that you get to go home and treat everybody like trash, and somehow that honors Jesus. Some of us have been raised in that, and the long-term impacts of that religious spirit, demonic agenda, it really messes with you in your adult years. It really messes with you. On the other hand, some of us were raised in theological liberal settings where everything was about just serving, like, it wasn't about believing on Christ and being born again and having an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit that flowed into a life of selflessness. It was, you just need to be a social worker. You need to do social justice stuff. And you actually become Christian as you do more good works. And you're supposed to do those good works out of your own strength. And that is crazy damning and crazy bondage and man that can be that can be crippling to constantly be telling yourself i'm not doing enough i'm not doing enough i'm not doing enough what you should be constantly telling yourself is i i want to be in the presence of the holy ghost and when your life is i love the cross of jesus and i love the presence of the holy ghost what flows out of us naturally is good streams Both of those extremes are incredibly, incredibly crippling. And I think for us as a body today, I think it would be good just to acknowledge that, man, some of that stuff lingers in your adult years. And it's probably good if you never just like come to the altar and just kind of said, I'm just going to repent of that. I'm just going to kind of cut the cord and just say to God and to my spiritual family, Hey, I've grown up around some religious spirity stuff. And I'm today, I just want to make sure I break ties with them, breaking ties with that position. And on the other hand, if it's, man, I don't know that I've ever really thought of the Christian faith as primarily being something I receive as a gift from the cross of Christ. I thought it was about being a better neighbor. I didn't realize it was about having a new life in Jesus. Like maybe today is the day to say, man, I'm going to leave that behind. And I want to be born again and really know God. I want a river to flow from me naturally, not to have to work and strive. Maybe that's you today. Maybe today's today just to come and say, I'm going to cut ties with that religious expression. So why don't you stand to your feet? We'll get ready to close. But what I'm after today is if this in any way made sense to you or some, um, altar team, if you want to get in place, I want to invite you to come to the altar today and just kind of say, I'm going to say yes to 
right doctrine and right living. I'm going to say yes to the right Christology and to be broken by the grace of Jesus for me in the incarnation. I want to really be Christian. I want to be a real Christian. Altars are open if you want to come and just kneel, repent, confess, just receive prayer. If you're sick in your body, want to give your life to Jesus, the altars are open for you. Emma, would you sing for us?